In New York on November 2, 1987, SDCF hosted a talk by Robert Lewis, a founding member of Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the Group Theater, and the Actors Studio. He speaks with great charisma and dynamism of his experiences in theater and his view of the evolution of theater around the world in the 20th century. Hello, I'm director-choreographer Christopher Gatelli, and you are listening to SDCF, Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theater Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. The situation of today's American actor and the director of actors is how to apply the good, truthful, gut realism brought down from the group theater to the needs of today with the demands of a decentralized theater and the new forms of playwriting. What it all comes down to constitutes a history of changing styles in acting and directing. It all started in the second half of the last century when the Italians invaded Russia. For those historians in the room who have gone into cardiac arrest, (laughs) let me hasten to explain that I mean the Italian actors. Tommaso Salvini conquered Moscow and St. Petersburg in 1882 and made a lasting impression on Konstantin Stanislavski. He was a young Russian actor working with a group of his landowner fathers uh, in his landowner father's uh, barn. Off, off, off Broadway. (laughs) Stanislavski missed Adelaide Ristori, who had been there in 61-62 for the simple reason that he was born in 1863. The climax of this invasion came in 1891 with the arrival of the greatest Italian of them all, Eleonora Duza. In the audience on the opening night was Anton Chekhov. The play was Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. When he got home, Chekhov wrote a letter to his sister, Marsha. Quote, Petersburg, March 17th, 1891, midnight. I have just seen the Italian actress Duza in Shakespeare's Cleopatra. I don't understand Italian, but she acted so well that it seemed to me that I understood every word. Looking at Duza, I understand why one is so bored in a Russian theater, unquote. This last sentence appears only in the pre-revolutionary collection of Chekhov's letters edited by his sister. It is omitted from the Soviet version. What inspired Stanislavski was the sense of truth in the acting of the Italians. He felt himself to be a sort of operetta-style actor, play-acting, indicating, I believe, is today's dirty word for it. He had read of the great English actor McCready's problems in seeking out the emotional truth behind the text, but now he saw the results. For Stanislavski set about searching for a way to ensure this sense of truth in actors not lucky enough to be geniuses like Duza. This search would go on throughout his whole long life. In 1923, the Moscow Art Theater, by then world famous, played New York City and had a profound effect on serious American theater artists. Three who defected when the company went home were Richard Boleslavsky, Tamara Dekakhanova, and Maria Uspenskaya. Actually, Boley 
as he was dubbed, had settled in America before the company arrived, joined it when it was here, and stayed in the USA when it went back to Russia. All three became teachers of Stanislavski's system in America. Madame Uspenskaya started in Boley School and then struck out on her own. The most important of the schools was Boleslavsky's American Laboratory Theater. To this went Lee Strasberg, Harold Kluerman, Stella Adler, who became the nucleus of the group theater and aspired not only to emulate the sense of truth they learned from the Stanislavski system, but to realize the advantages of an acting ensemble as opposed to the star system. This led to the birth in 1931 of the group theater. Hal Kluerman was foreign play reader for the Theater Guild. Cheryl Crawford was their casting director. And Lee Strasberg was stage manager. They asked the Guild if they could set up a studio within the Theater Guild. And when they were turned down, the three defected from the Guild and started to plan their own theater. In the winter of 3031, their project arrived at a series of Friday night after the theater meetings at Steinway Hall. I got invited because Harold and Lee came down to the Provincetown Playhouse to see their friend Sandy Meisner play the defense attorney in Gods of the Lightning, a play about Sacco and Vansetti. I played the Vansetti part, and after the show, they asked me to the meetings. To all the actors who showed up, Harold spoke, Lee spoke, and Cheryl spoke. Also invited speakers like Aaron Copeland, Waldo Frank, and others. But mostly Harold spoke. <laughs> defining what a true theater group should be. One night, Eunice Stoddard, one of the actresses chosen for the group later, brought a friend of hers along, a ravishing beauty named Catherine Hepburn, who was just starting out on her career. She was, I believe, at that time an understudy to Hortense Alden, who was a well-known actress of that time. At the end of the evening, Harold asked her if she'd be interested in joining such a group. She replied, oh no, that may be all right for you people, but you see, I'm going to become a star. Well, you can imagine how shocked we all were since the whole point of the meeting was to do away with the star system. <laughs> In 1945, I was playing one of my many oriental villains in, uh, in Dragon Seed, which Catherine Hepburn was starring in. She uh, 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 sat on the ground one day waiting for the sun to come out, which is what you do when you're on location. And uh, she said, well, Bobby, at least I'm the only girl in America who's laid a five million dollar Chinese egg. I told her how clever I thought it was of her to have known when she was a young girl, to have known herself so well to know that with her kind of individual personality, it would be impossible for her to be part of any group. She said, you and Gadget, that's Kazan, she said, you and Gadget were the only two people who came out of those ten years of the group theater completely untouched. And I said, yes, Catherine, you're absolutely right. Outside of two or three complete nervous breakdowns, it didn't touch me at all. <laughs> at the end of that season of meetings, 28 actors were chosen to repair to Brookfield Center, Connecticut, for indoctrination, classes, talks, and rehearsals for our first two plays. Cheryl said, we had to each contribute $90 for the summer for our food. And I didn't have $90. And nobody in my family had $90. And I didn't know anybody who had $90. But I had met one gentleman who was a 
investor. And I took a chance. I went to visit him and I said, uh, you invest in stocks and bonds. How would you like to invest in somebody's life? Because this is going to be my life. And if you'll give me the $90 that I need to go, I promise I'll pay you back even bit by bit uh, when I start to earn my salary. Uh, in those early days of the group theater, $40 was my salary, and uh, we didn't often get it. When there was no money, we didn't get it. So it took some time for me to uh, save up $5 at a time to, to pay him back. And then one day, I read in the newspaper that he had died. And I never did get to pay him back for my life. There were ten summers of rehearsals, classes, and Clurman's talks. Harold talked so far into the night that I remember one night, after four or five hours, the actors were all laid out on the floor. <laughs> Some of them were asleep. Uh, some of them were drinking black coffee to keep awake. And Kazan and I had a gesture that we used to do, which went like this, which meant that we were pasting our ears back on. <laughs> when Harold finished, ground to a halt finally, about three or four in the morning, Boris Aronson, who was our very acerbic scene designer said, well, you know, I understand him now. I mean, if he wouldn't have been the director of the group theater, he'd have been Father Divine. <laughs> Howell's thesis was taken from Gordon Craig. To reform the art of the theater, it is first necessary to reform the life of the theater. Today, over 50 years later, it's still true. There were 10 winters from 1931 to 1941, 25 new plays by American playwrights that would, quote, reflect the life of our times, unquote. Now, in hindsight, it might be observed that that was one reason that it ended after 10 years, because how many good new plays are there for a particular acting company in a season? They did no classics. No revivals, as per the theater's spine. Also, we were an art theater operating on a commercial basis. But it was a real theater as such, and an enduring influence here and abroad. 1938, when we took Golden Boy to London, there were not only the reviews, there were editorials. Speaking of our gutsy acting, remarking that we played with our backs to the audience, something that hadn't been done up to that time because one never knew when royalty might be. Come in, darling, you can sit somewhere. There are seats here, so you don't have to stand in the hall. Hiya, darling. It's Ella Gerber, isn't it? Yes, it is. Hiya, sweetheart. Take a, take a good seat right there. Okay? I was just saying that in London, when we were there in 1938, the, uh, the fact that we played with our backs to the audience sometime was a, a occasion for editorial comment because one never knew when royalty might be in the house, and so one very seldom turned one back on, on the audience. Uh, this uh, ensemble feeling that the group had led to a number of movements in London at that time. Joan Littlewood's Unity Theatre. There was actually a group theatre formed by that name in London. John Osborne, Look Back in Anger. All of that uh, movement that started up then at that time came as a result of the impact that the uh, group's acting company made at the St. James's Theatre in London, 1938. Here, the, this permanent theatre group led to the development of writers like Odets and directors and teachers 
like Kazan, Stella Adler, Sandy Meisner, and myself. Also, we had studios in the group uh, theater during those 10 years uh, for the new people coming up. I remember uh, one day uh, in a class I had in the basement of the Broadhurst Theater where we were playing Men in White, uh, Clifford had been working with a group down at the uh, theater union uh, and uh, had a kid in his class that he thought was very talented called Julius Garfinkel and he brought him up to my uh, class in the uh, basement and said that I should, uh, I should work with him. He turned out later, of course, you guessed to be Jules Garfinkel and then Jules Garfield and finally John Garfield in the, uh, in the movies. And although he played mostly gangsters and toughs in the movies, that uh, year in that workshop he did a, a number based on a Picasso painting. I was working even in those days with painting and music and movement. Uh, and uh, I gave him this Picasso uh, uh, shepherd boy and the exercise was to reproduce the painting exactly as Picasso had painted it with every single physical property of it then try to decide what that character was thinking at that moment that that uh, painting was so you filled out the inside and justified the pose uh, with your inner uh, experience then start to move it around how that character would, would walk, sit, stand, run and so on and then add to it a text chosen that would be apt for that uh, uh, painting and finally add music to it so that we were starting to to, uh, to make a uh, uh, fusion of all the uh, arts uh, into one uh, uh, theater art and uh, Julie's was so unbelievably beautiful that I ran upstairs to the top of the of the um, Broadhurst where the group had its office and I uh, asked Harold and Lee to come down and made Julie do it again for, for them and the next summer they took him away uh, with us uh, in our rehearsal period and he got a small part in the first play and then went right into Awake and Sing from that and the, uh, the rest was history. These experiments in styles other than realism which also is a style, led to uh, my production of My Hearts in the Highlands in 1939, uh, which was an attempt at creating this fusion of all the theater arts, text, movement, decor, music, and so on. I was interested now not only in what and why, but how. In other words, not only the inner truth, which the group was so famous for and, and paid so much attention to, but to find the form in which this truth could be uh, embodied. And I was so uh, uh, hipped on that subject of, uh, of, uh, of how something was to be done in addition to what and why, that on the opening night uh, of uh, My Hearts in the Highlands, at the end uh, of the play when the old man uh, from the uh, home who said he's the greatest Shakespearean actor in the world dies I wanted to give him a, a real Shakespearean exit and we had a ramp going up to the Highlands and uh, I had him placed on the shoulders of two men uh, with his uh, long Shakespearean trumpet hanging around his neck hanging down in back of him and they were to carry him up with his head hanging down uh, as a cortege going up to the uh, beat of the music that Paul Bowles had written this wonderful score uh, for the uh, uh, production. And I told the two fellows to start out on their right foot so that they would, uh, would, not, would not jerk going up the, uh, the ramp and uh, poor uh, Art Smith would fall off their shoulders. And uh, on the opening night, I was standing in the back of, it was my first production on Broadway. Uh, I was standing in the back of the, what was then the Guild Theater. 
and uh, everything had gone fine up to then. Every cue had worked, every light, every sound cue, everything. And now we were at the final moment of the play, and one of those guys stepped out on the left foot, <laughs> which made it go like that. Uh, I fell back against the wall of the Guild Theater, cracked my head, a good crack, and went reeling down the stairs to the lobby. If you remember the theater, it's now called the Virginia or something. Uh, you have to go downstairs to the, to the lobby uh, and out onto the street and leaned against the uh, theater uh, like that, feeling that everything had been destroyed. And uh, uh, when I saw the audience coming out at the end, I wasn't even there for the applause or anything. Uh, I ran around the stage door and went in and and the actors were coming off the stage and they were all so happy and I said, oh my God, wasn't that terrible? And they said, what, what, what? Because nobody had noticed it at all. <laughs> not, not the actors, not the audience, not anybody. But I had felt that if it's supposed to be right, left, right, left, it cannot be left, right. That's all. In 1941, Kazan and I helped Harold Plurman turn the key in the lock of our Saudi building office for the last time, and the group was ended. By 1947, Kazan and I were established Broadway directors, but we missed our artistic home, the group theater. We took a long walk through Central Park, and then along with Cheryl Crawford established the Actors Studio, whose 40th anniversary is this year. Two of our goals were, then, to extend the group realism into areas of style and to shift the emphasis from emotions, which sometimes can seem to be personal emotion rather than the characters, to the intention of the moment. Kazan had the younger people, uh, Julie Harris and Claus Leachman, Mine was somewhat more experienced, like Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Maureen Stapleton, Jerome Robbins, Mildred Dunnock, Carl Malden, Eli Wallach, David Wayne, John Forsythe, Sidney Lumet, E.G. Marshall, Beatrice. Now, I'll tell you, I'm going to stop there because I don't want you to think that I'm dropping names. That was really the class. That was the class. Some of them are still alive, and some of them are still in my workshops. By 1950s, I had left the studio, and in the third season, Lee Strasberg took over until his death, and I formed my own workshop. Now, by 1957, I felt that so many descendants of the Stanislavski system were scrambling it, that on April 15th at the Playhouse Theater, I gave a series of after-the-theater lectures called Method or Madness. One basic point I tried to clear up was the emphasis of personal emotion at the expense of the means of expression. My rally and slogan was, if crying were acting, my Aunt Rivka would be doozer. <laughs> of course, I, I didn't have an Aunt Rivka, but, but they got the point. The next development were the burgeoning of off-Broadway theaters. The Living Theater started in the 50s, and the decentralization of the American theater. As Broadway shrunk to musicals, revivals, and British imports, repertory theaters, regional and university theaters proliferated. Coincidental with this movement was the changing styles in playwriting. There were fewer well-made Lillian Hellman-like plays. And as in the Cubist movement in art, plays became fragmented. To the actor, all this meant he now could no longer just play close to his own behavior patterns, but had to conquer all styles, from the Greeks to avant-garde. The technical problem was how to preserve that good gut truthfulness the American actor displayed in realism 
while mastering the new problems of style. Verse speaking, period deportment in classics, or abstract dialogue like Lucky Speech and Waiting for Godot. I remember seeing at that time a play off-Broadway uh, in which all of the dialogue was song titles and the publishers. A typical line might be, Melancholy Baby to Silver Brown and Henderson. <laughs> well, I went to see it and it uh, seemed that the plot was more or less a uh, uh, generation gap play. There was a father and a son and uh, when the son had to leave home, he turned to his father and mother and said, it's a long, long way to Tipperary, as he went out. And I thought, what they're doing really is playing this like some sort of uh, vaudeville. In other words, they got all the laughs from the juxtaposition of the lines and the publishers and so on, but actually what was missing here was not the uh, uh, new style dialogue, but the underpinning of truth which could have made this into something more than just a, a gag play. Because after all, I had left home when I was a young fellow, and I want to tell you it is a long, long way to Tipperary. The actors, caught up in this dilemma, went to various teachers of voice, speech, movement, fencing, judo, tai chi, etc. While all this was going on here, Peter Brook, a stylish English director, was trying to get his verse speakers in King Lear to improvise for, quote, truth. Charles Marowitz, whom some of you may know, was an American who went to uh, England, had a theater there for years, now back in this country, was the, uh, uh, kept alive as assistant to Peter Brook on his King Lear uh, production. I read the log and it was very interesting because the uh, uh, the younger actors were willing to uh, uh, improvise and to experiment with Peter and the older actors uh, refused saying it's all in the words love. As a result two kinds of actors emerged here. The first group that believed in that true feeling is all. They could do emotional memory exercises, but found it hard to move, gesture, speak, or express in any form the truth of the period or style of the play. Now how true to a dramatic poet is it to reveal his emotions but not the form in which they are expressed? I heard an actress at this time doing Porsche's speech for the Merchant of Venice and she said, the quality of mercy isn't strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven on the place beneath. I mean, it's twice blessed. Blesseth him that gives, him that takes. Now, what she was doing was she was being true to herself. How about a little truth for Shakespeare? The second group believed that the manner of expression is all. They move prettily, speak beautifully, and end up with sounds that come from the larynx rather than the head and the heart. Now how true to a poet is it to admire his words and ignore his emotions. You've heard them. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. The singers. They don't care that two lines before that, Macbeth is told that his wife just died. This guy couldn't care less. He's busy singing away. <laughs> Now, this business of the inside and the outside, of course, is the old polemic of form and content. 
a woman came up to Arthur Schnabel at a party one night, great Austrian pianist, and she said, Herr Schnabel, are you one of those pianists who plays with feeling or do you play in time? <laughs> and he said, Madam, what's to prevent me from feeling in time? He spoke for us all. Situation. But, rather, what would I do if I were that character in that play, in that period, by that playwright, etc.? Then the inside thought, feeling, and the outside, the means of expression, would derive from each other. The what and the why and the how would fuse into a totality. I call as witness Thomas Carlyle, 1795-1881, in the last of six lectures that he gave on May 22, 1840, the lecture was called The Hero as King. It was the end of a series called On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic and History. Don't tell me I don't do my homework. <laughs> These lectures had nothing to do with the theater, by the way. But I found the following quote in them, which has become my Bible. Quote, It is meritorious to insist on forms. Religion and all else naturally clothes itself in forms. But there are suitable true forms and then there are untrue, unsuitable. As the briefest definition, one might say, forms which grow round the substance, if we rightly understand that, will correspond to the real nature and purpose of it, will be true, good. Forms which are consciously put round the substance, bad. I invite you to reflect on this. It distinguishes true from false, in ceremonial form, earnest solemnity from empty pageant in all human things." Unquote. How about them apples? Such an understanding of form would avoid much of the present fadism, camp, imitation Grotowski, bad Brecht, and vanity productions where the director seems to ask himself, how can I bring these stiffs like Shakespeare, Chekhov, and Ibsen alive with an injection of my genius? <laughs> After all, conceptual theater is not new. Only the term is. Orson Welles, Voodoo Macbeth, half a century ago, grew out of the very spirit of the text. His black shirt Caesar production fit the original like a glove. West Side Story added its own dialogue, music, and choreography to recreate Romeo and Juliet. A recent Romeo I saw with switch blades, a red convertible Porsche automobile, etc. The whole production pasted on to Shakespeare's verse seemed to me merely smart aleck. What we really don't need is a punk rock King Lear or the three sisters from Uganda. <laughs> Let their imagination, even their genius, flourish but for God's sake, let it be rooted in and grow out of the nature of the play and not be something pasted on. And let the actors ask themselves, if I understand the thoughts and feelings of my character, how can I find the behavioral elements, voice, movement, that will clothe my part in a form? Conversely, if I have an idea of the physical characterization, how can I justify that from the inside? Olivia 
said that he wanted to know what the character's nose was like before he started to rehearse a part. He said that once in the actor's studio and everybody fainted. <laughs> of course, he didn't mean that he was going to bring nose putty to the first rehearsal, you understand. What he meant was that like all artists, you start out with some kind of a vision. You know where you are going. And therefore, before he could choose his inner things, his thoughts, his feelings, his intentions, and so on, he had to know, is this man going to be a patrician, let's say, because then I will find patrician thoughts, etc., and so on. It's the way an artist works. He might not even end up with nose putty. He may have gotten from that image a sufficient angle of his head, let's say, looking down his nose maybe or so on, but he wouldn't even have to have that nose putty that they thought he meant he was going to bring to the first rehearsal. That brings us up to the present problem of style in acting, directing, and writing. I don't plan to settle for this, the inside, or that, the outside but insist on this and that. I'm seeking a third force. It's what we all mean, I think, by total acting, total theater. My uh, question and answer glasses on now, so I'm ready, far away. Ma'am? Will I turn on my ear trumpet here? Go talk like you're in the actor's studio, I have to turn this thing on. It's very, very clever, actually. See the sound goes in the holes here and goes all the way across there and comes out on that. <laughs> now, what were you saying? I just wondered if you make a general comment about commercial theater. Make a commercial theater? A make a what about commercial theater? A comment. Oh, well, we all know. I mean, uh, very few good new American plays as you know, maybe one or two in a season. Uh, fortunately, the writers have a chance to try their plays out in uh, regional theaters now. Uh, I myself don't believe that they should use the regional theaters as tryouts for Broadway, because after all, it's supposed to be an alternative theater, not a tryout for Broadway. But uh, very often, a play that succeeds in uh, regional theater gets moved to Broadway, and so we occasionally get blessed that way but uh, as you know mostly it's uh, musicals and so on and I suppose the reason uh, for it is that writers uh, have a great difficulty in making a living in the theater and therefore when they uh, get an offer to do a television series or something they uh, rush to that in order to survive that if there was some kind of theater that would ensure them some kind of continuous life because after all it's a very interesting thing about money anybody interested in money here uh, because in the group we got $200 with the top salary of course this is the 30s and that now would be something much more than 200 of course but let's say just proportionately uh, and it went down to 40 which is what I got and uh, uh, I revised Stanislavski's dictum which said there were no small parts, only small actors, to there are no small parts, only small salaries. <laughs> anyway, uh, the fact that we were there for ten years doing one play after another, even though there were hard times and sometimes we had no play at all and, and had to go out and earn money other ways and all kinds of things. After all, it was the Depression 
time. Maybe we'll get lucky and have another one. <laughs> and uh, uh, the fact of the matter was that Fortune magazine, which has to do with money, published a list uh, once of actors' salaries. And it turned out that one of the best bets financially for an actor was to be in the group theater. Came as a surprise to us, of course. But what they meant was that we were able to survive over a period of 10 years. Uh, whereas most other actors who got, let's say, much more at that time, $500 a week was a very good salary. Uh, uh, they got that maybe for six weeks and then were out of work for a number of months. And there was no television in those days. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the actual... Uh, business of finding a home for actors where they could survive uh, has still, I think, uh, to be the answer uh, to actors, directors, designers, because everything came out of that theater. And to this day, there are still reverberations of, uh, of those 10 years' work, and it's half a century later. So that's, I think, the answer that the actors and the writers and the uh, uh, directors and designers have to do is to find a way to get together and uh, form companies, form groups. You can't wait around for the for the phone to ring. Next question. Yes, ma'am. No, decentralized means that moved away from Broadway, which was the center, and of course there was always Chicago and several other places too, but Broadway was the main place. Whereas now uh, most of the uh, of the uh, of theater theater, namely classics, revivals, new plays, and so on, take place all over the country. In in uh, John Joy's theater in uh, San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles and Chicago, Steppenwolf, and so on. Of course, yes. of course. Everything has to do with the economy. <laughs> right. Yes, ma'am. Well, national theater uh, for America, I, I think first you have to have a theater and then you can have a national theater. You know, we have so little theater now that it's hardly, you can hardly find it. Um, um, you have to take trips all over the country and dig out things, you know. Uh, national uh, theater would be a theater like the group in which the artists uh, got together. But the trouble uh, with national theater uh, with American psychology is that it would probably be run by a real estate man. And... Uh, and uh, the artistic uh, director would be somebody also from business, uh, so that the artist wouldn't have anything to say about it, you know, and it would not be a theater at all. It would be show business. Most of the things that develop and call themselves theaters are really producing organizations of one kind or another, but that's not what is meant by theater, as I understand it, because I started with Miss Legallion, which was a theater. It was a repertory theater, a wonderful repertory theater, where everything happened. We had apprentices, we learned our craft, we had designers, uh, Aline Bernstein, uh, Irene Sharoff, all of these people. We had a, a company of actors. We did all kinds of plays from the entire world repertory and uh, charged 50 cents uh, to $1.50. And uh, I don't think Mr. Gallion's got nearly the credit that she should have for having done that and made a real repertory theater and shown that it can be done. But you have to have Eve Legallion or somebody like that who has the will to do it and you have to have the actors who are willing to make the sacrifice. That's the reason why we don't have theater companies. Nobody is willing to make the sacrifice. So that even when they, we get together, as I have, practically every other week with a group of people who say they want to start a theater, in every city in this country I've gone to these meetings and... Uh, uh, where everybody is terribly enthusiastic and uh, uh, then the moment it starts 
and somebody doesn't have a lead role and gets an offer to do anything on television or something, they're gone. So there is no theater. Well, what they want really is exposure. And what's the exposure for? Again, for television or films. That's what they use the theater for. So that's why there isn't any theater. It's a deep disease in this country. That's it. The gentleman is right about uh, uh, the uh, uh, economy, of course. But the economy is a disease too, isn't it? Sorry about that. Yes. No, it isn't. Of course not. Of course not. The English theater has changed enormously since the days that when we were there in 30 because I go all the time. I was just there this past summer, and I saw uh, various things. That Romeo and Juliet I talked about with the Porsche automobile, which was genuinely offensive, that was the Royal Shakespeare Company, though, I must tell you. So it was very interesting to me uh, that the best acting I saw, and this is rather sad commentary, was uh, Alan Bates and his company in a play called Melon. Melon? Yeah. Melon. Uh, absolutely superb uh, uh, ensemble acting. And it was a commercial production in the Haymarket Theater. So what it comes down to, I suppose, is that there's either good theater or bad theater. But still, the point uh, remains that if we want to develop uh, our sense of style, which I think uh, we should be doing, uh, just as they took to doing all the group theater stuff and started improvising and, and, uh, and started writing plays about the angry young man and all of that uh, stuff. When we went there, the uh, counter-revolution is taking place now, and uh, the English have come over here now and, uh, and uh, taken over, mainly because they know how to speak their own language. And that seems very impressive to, uh, to critics and, and people, because uh, when the Americans do it, they don't play Richard III with any sense of verse at all. They bring Richard III to them. They don't take themselves to Richard III. Applause. That's our problem. That's our problem. That's what I was trying to say all through that talk. Yes, ma'am. Oh, well, I do that all the time. I've been doing well, that all the time. The new ones, that you're just beginning. Are yeah. you going to concentrate on the style? On what, dear? On the style. Well, I always do. I always do. Uh, in my uh, uh, scene classes, we do everything. We do the Greeks. We do Restoration. We do French farce. We do Moliere. We do Shakespeare. We do Avant-Garde. We do all of that stuff. American actors are very good at Arthur Miller and... Uh, and that, you know, they really don't need to go to school for that. They don't need to go to school anymore. They've been go going for 50 years, and they can do that better than anybody in the world. There's no point in having studios for that. But there is a point in having studios to force them. I took darling Will Hare. You know Will Hare? Awfully good actor. Uh, when I, I did a project recently at the studio, and... Uh, uh, I gave him King Lear to do. He's grown into it now. And uh, he started out, and the first time, uh, he, well, he did, of course, the big scene on the heath. Crack your winds, all of that stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, he was so full of insanity and wildness and outdoorness and emotion and everything. Couldn't understand a friggin' word he said. <laughs> but it was very impressive. So I said, now listen, Will, when he got finished, I said, here goes the, the end of a beautiful friendship. But I am going to see if I can make you retain all that marvelous wildness and feeling that you have, your characterization, your... Ins 
craziness, your everything, and get every single word out and, and scan every bit of the verse and get all of the inner rhythms and get all the language problems there and still not lose what you have. Well, this was heresy in the actor's studio, as you can imagine. And uh, we started. And I want to tell you, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for him and it wasn't easy for me because they're not used to paying any attention to the text and to the problems of the text. And after all, if it is poetry and it is language, that's part of the truth, isn't it? Otherwise, write your own damn play. So uh, uh, we started to work. And do you know that he did it? He did it, and by, by the end, I proved to him and to the others there that it is possible for American actors to be the best Shakespearean actors in the world once they conquer the problem of the speech, because the rest they have. Yes, ma'am. David Mabbitt is a very stylish writer. He has very, very careful, uh, carefully designed language. Very carefully designed, as designed as Shakespeare. You can't fool around with his language at all. He is a, he is, he is a poet, and his, in his form, he's writing about a, a certain a, a view of America, and the American dollar, and the American buffalo, and so on. Uh, and the fact that business is murder, and whatever all of his themes are, that's him writing today. But he is a very classy writer. He is not a realistic writer at all. By realistic, I mean naturalistic, in other words, at all. But the interesting thing is, uh, uh, Pinter said something uh, once. I want to say to me, but I'm so afraid you'll think I'm dropping names. <laughs> I did give him his first party in this country, though. Anyway, uh, said to me that his plays, his dialogue, which everybody calls Pinteresque and is supposed to be, you know, full of menace and this, that, or the other, he says, I'm sorry, that's the way people talk. He says, I go out and I listen, and that's the way they talk. If you think they're not connecting with one another or not replying to what the other one says, the way people do in plays, and picking up their cues, that's the way people talk. The way they talk in plays is not the way they talk. <laughs> and you read the plays and you'll see there's a lot of truth in it. How are you, Val? I haven't seen you in a long time. Nice to see you. Haven't changed at all. You're like me. <laughs> what was the reaction of the group theater and your personal reaction when Stella Adler came back from Paris when she studied the status You haven't read my book, obviously. I should have brought them along and sold some of them here. I did read it. Well, it's all in slings and arrows. The whole thing. You just want me to tell, tell my book. I always said I would never tell stories out of my book. Make people buy it. Well, what happened was what I, what I said in the book, which is that she spent uh, six weeks with Stanislavski, who happened to be in Paris at the time, recovering from an illness. And he sat out in the Bois de Bologna, and she went every day and sat with him. The fact that he died shortly after that has nothing to do with this story at all, mind you. But she did go there every day for six weeks and said to him, Mr. Stanislavski, we are using your system in the group theater, and I am very unhappy with it. The actors are very unhappy with it. And he said, well, perhaps you are using it wrong. Tell me, show me what you do. And she had along a uh, play that she had uh, uh, been in, in the group. Big Night, was that it? One of those, anyway. It was one of the early plays uh, of the groups. And uh, she showed them how she worked and probably uh, did a scene for him and so on. And he worked with her and explained to her that the emphasis that we were putting on emotional memory, you know, we used to, 
what we call take a minute uh, before we went on we would get up to our get up to the side of the stage uh, at least a minute before our entrance and we would sit there and do an emotional memory exercise before we went on it was a little hard because we also had to listen for our cue <laughs> nobody ever thought of that except the actors who had to do it so it was a little hard to do an emotional memory exercise if you're listening for your cue right uh, at any rate we did it if we had to come on and say the carriages awaits for everything we did it and of course it led to a great deal of sickness because we were constantly stirring up our insides uh, uh, unnecessarily which is bad for you right I don't know if there are any doctors in the house but it's kind of like self-induced emotion which is a form of hysteria uh, whereas actually emotion is something which comes out of the action what you have to do what you want I am feeling something right now right the, as a matter of fact you're always feeling something you'd be dead but what I'm feeling now comes out of the fact that my intention is to try to clear up once and for all this point that this uh, young gentleman has asked me about and I want to make it uh, uh, clear I want to make it serious but I don't want to be too serious because I also want to be funny and I got all this stuff going which is what I want I want I want as a result of that I am feeling a certain way also my relation to you you're going like that so that helps me out it means that you're getting it and accepting it because I remember I had a girl once in class who always sat in the back she was the girl who sang in pins and needles she came to class there was a show in the uh, in the 30s the ladies garment workers union show and she wanted to go on and become an actor so she came to class and she'd sit in the back always and uh, I'd be doing my stuff talking teaching whatever and she'd sit there and she'd go <laughs> the whole time drove me crazy you know no matter what I did so this fellow's going that affects my feeling right so in other words the point I'm trying to make is that emotion is a concomitant is, that's a good word isn't it if that's what I mean of all of these things that are going on in this scene now I don't have to say to take a uh, take a, a minute now to get myself into a serious mood in order to do that no I have just to do my task and that's what he made clear to her the importance in other words of the principle of of intention which is all of this that I just talked about which includes all of this that I just talked about as opposed to the other well of course it was a great relief for her <laughs> Uh, because you know Stella like all the rest of us was crying all the time in every play you know we were crying if we could just cry we knew they would think we were good actors people tried to cry in life too I remember being in Strasbourg's apartment once uh, and he was playing a, a Beethoven's piano sonata Schnabel of course and uh, there were a number of actresses and actors around and we were sitting and listening to the music and I looked around at these various people while this long sonata was going on and I actually saw people trying to cry <laughs> trying to cry and because they thought that Lee would feel that they were serious and talented and actors if they could cry crying became the thing you see so that cleared the air like it cleared our artistic sinuses when Stella came back and told us that because it, it really revolutionized the way we thought you see and made it much easier for everybody what happened of course was that Strasbourg heard about this talk and came in the next day and blew his top because he maintained that we were not using the Stanislavski system we were using the Strasbourg method and so on and gave you know all the rationalizations that one does 
uh, and it, they never spoke to each other thereafter. But uh, uh, that was what happened in 1934, and it took several years before Strasbourg was uh, out of the group, and uh, and uh, we went on then with Kluhrman, and uh, life became a little different because Howell was much more uh, uh, rounded and not so hipped on that one angle of... Uh, of the craft of acting. Thank you for listening to SDCF, Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.